My guest today is John Cushing, who, with his colleague Michael Waydock, has set up a business called Anything But Footy, which would be a great relief to those who think there's too much football anyway. <laughs> it's a podcast and audio service production, and we're going to talk about that, John, in a moment. You explain how you got there. Is it something that's working well? How long have you been doing this? We make podcasts for people. We make podcasts for ourselves. We present podcast ourselves as you say anything but footy is the brand and then we decided that we wanted to make a company out of it as well and effectively we get commissioned rob to make podcasts for people that's how our business has been set up and how we're trying to grow our business we get employed by people to make their podcasts. There is no such thing as a new idea. Audio has been going since Marconi set it up in Chelmsford via radio in the early 1900s. And, and I think audio just evolves. And you all have seen newspaper articles recently about two million people in the UK want to start a podcast this year. And it's all really being led by the USA. They say that when America sneezes, we catch a cold. I think it works the other way as well. Whatever is big in America tends to then eventually come over here. And podcasting and audio has been very, very strong in America for a long time. Now, their business models, a lot of their business models are based on subscriptions. So it's about people listening to the podcasts and and you get a subscription, you pay for that and you get exclusive content. But what we do as a business is we make podcasts for people. And the reason why it's called Anything But Footy, you kind of joked about it. Absolutely right. So many people do podcasts about football. I do one myself, but so many people do it. And it's like, well, what could we offer that was something different? And so Michael and I, in our previous careers, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later, covered Olympic sport. We did London 2012. We did Glasgow 2014 Commonwealth Games. He went to the Gold Coast in 2018. We went to Rio in 2016 for the Olympics. And we thought these sports don't get as much coverage on a daily basis but actually they're working just as hard as footballers in fact more so effectively Rob we wanted to come up with a podcast that celebrated Olympic athletes every week rather than every four years or every two years with the Winter Olympics that was the whole idea of, of the podcast and then that grew into a company well let's park that for a moment then John because uh, you kind of got there and, and you mentioned uh, your previous work and Michael as well in radio mm. but you must have had some thought in your mind even if you can think back to the dark dark days when you were at school <laughs> did you always want to go into communication media even radio i remember probably around the age of 12 or 13 wanting to be the next chris evans on the radio that was what I wanted to be. So he was bursting onto Radio 1 in the very early 90s. And radio was a passion for me. I particularly remember Classic FM launching, which seems a weird thing to say because it's a very different radio station to what I would be listening to growing up. But I remember the bird song being played for, for test transmissions. And it was like this incredible thing that suddenly just appeared on the radio dial. And I remember being intrigued as to what that was going to be about. I didn't know that much about it. And I didn't really know anyone in my family who were radio people. It wasn't like my dad was a famous DJ and he was a tax inspector. So it was probably something I knew I wasn't going to be is, is work for the Inland Revenue. But I don't know where the radio stuff came from. Looking back on it, and I've talked more about it with my father, as you can imagine, and my family... My dad was interested in radio when he was growing up. He was of the Luxembourg era with uh, uh, yeah, headphones yeah. in his ear yeah. under the bed sheets at night. 
And even my granddad, so my mum's dad, was very much into to radio very early days in terms of the BBC. So I think there was obviously some interest there from a family point of view, but there certainly wasn't. As, as you said, how do you make a living out of this? I didn't know how I was going to make a living in radio, but it was something I was interested in. The careers advice was very much, mm, yeah, I think you probably need to go and get a proper job. And there was a famous story, Rob, where I finished school and finished sixth form college and I kind of carried on sixth form college because at 16, I wasn't in a position where I could earn a living. So I was like, well, I might as well go on and do another two years at, at school because at that point you could leave school at 16. You, you can't tend to now. And so I was working part time in our local post office in a village in Norfolk to earn a living to try and carry on doing the radio and I was doing volunteering and, and that kind of thing and I can remember being asked to do a shift and I was like no sorry I can't do that because I'm going to do a radio show or something like that and the owner of it went I think you need to decide whether you want to carry on playing or you want to start working and I was 18 and I looked him in the face and I went I'll carry on playing thank you very much and I walked out and I never went back Uh, and now that was the local post office in the village it wasn't probably the greatest thing to do because my mum used to go in there every day but I remember getting absolutely shouted at by my dad that this was the wrong thing to have done but actually looking back on it it was exactly the right thing to do because it forced me then to start getting some paid work at, at some of the radio stations in Norfolk which is where I grew up. Were there many radio stations that you could go to? Because in the old days, if you wanted to get something on the radio, it had to be through the BBC. Yeah. And then it got it, then it widened out, as you said, the, the sort of Luxembourg. And then there were the pirate ships out at sea. There were opportunities coming for commercial radio. But you're talking about, it's not that long ago, but you are talking about a time when it was quite difficult. Yes, absolutely. So there wasn't anything called Ofcom at that point. It was the Radio Authority still that decided who had licences. And it was still very much, as you say, the BBC. There was a local BBC, so Radio Norfolk, where I grew up. And there was Radio Broadland, which was the commercial operator, which started in 1984. And I'm talking at this age, kind of 1992, 93, 94. So I was 16, 17, 18 uh, at that period. Now, at that point, the Radio Authority started to offer what were termed RSLs, so Restricted Service Licences. And we're still talking FM, NAM. There was no such thing as digital radio or online radio as there is now. And so my first taste of radio was at Radio Norfolk. I managed, while I was at Sixth Form College, to get in and meet a guy called David Clayton, who I will thank for starting my career. And he knows this, and we're still friends on Facebook. And he'll send me regular photos of me looking like 12 years old when I was actually 18. And I went on the pretense that I wanted to interview him for my Sixth Form College project about radio and I just annoyed him from that point on and he allowed me to come in on a Wednesday and go to the what was called the gramophone library Rob in those days uh-huh. where they actually yeah. had records yeah. that mm-hmm. you, you had to put away and so I used to put away records that the presenters in those days the presenters could still choose their music there was a, a playlist and some ideas from above or London or wherever the bosses were but generally each radio station still ran its own music policy and so I worked there and then then managed through people that I met at Radio Norfolk there was something called Radio Cracker which was a Christmas RSL in I think it was Christmas 93 or 92 and then I also then started working with some people an RSL called Lowestoft Town Radio which was just in North Suffolk not very far from Norwich 
And actually, Rob, we then did three RSLs and each time I did more and more because I got friends with them and and did more and started presenting and did sport, which I was interested in. And they eventually applied for a commercial radio license. They proved that there was enough demand and Radio Broadland didn't cover it as much as they should have done. That was the argument. And so Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft had a brand new radio station called The Beach that my friends set up. They funded it themselves, they bought the license, they won the license, they set it all up, they they ran the radio station 24 hours a day, and they, after launch, a couple of months in, they realised they couldn't live without me, and so they employed me to, to go in and, and help, and that was in September 96. I will forever be grateful for, I'm still best mates with, with Steve, who set it up, and Mark, and John, and Amory, and some really great people who were really at the forefront, as you rightly say, there was a whole change in the 90s about radio and there was this real drive and we thought we could make a living and I think we made great radio we probably weren't we were very young I was 21 younger than that they were in their mid-20s we probably needed more experience in earning money and generating money but look the first rage R was 38% reach which you know in anyone's book is is incredible and that radio station was eventually bought and we all moved elsewhere into our careers in London and, and various other things but I look back on those times and go wow if, if I knew then what I know now it would have been a, a huge success. It was still a success, but it was very, very interesting and eye-opening and, and running your own business. But I absolutely loved it and, and have so much respect for them and, and what they did. In a way, what you're saying behind all that is that you, you have to have the guts to go in somewhere without the experience necessarily, but with the determination and convince people that you've actually got something to offer. Yeah. And that's the, one of the great things of youth. OK, let's move on. You then moved into the London area, inevitably, I guess. Yep. I was offered a job at Oasis FM in St Albans, which is why I now live in Harpenden and have been here pretty much ever since. So at that time, it was 1998, it was owned by the Essex Radio Group. I really wanted to work for Essex FM, but the job was at Oasis in St Albans. So I thought, well, it's a way in. I knew I wanted to move up the ladder and continue my radio career, by which point I was doing news, Rob. And Uh and again, I wasn't a trained journalist in any way, shape or form. I did sport. I learned a bit of news at at Radio Norfolk, working with the news editor there, uh, Jill Bennett, her name was. And again, I I can remember spending hour and hours with her going through press releases and and sort of saying, oh, I think this is a story or this is a story and she said yes no and so I learnt my trade really that way and then started being a news editor at the beach and then moved down to Oasis and I was there for a couple of years and managed to be on Essex FM for for six months which I absolutely loved it was a huge radio station in Essex and those days and Peter Stewart was the news editor there and again he's still one of my best mates and absolutely taught me how to be a radio journalist and writing the way that was relevant to people not just press release speak and I learned really my broadcast news journalist trade with him and then I joined Hart in November 2000 and it was Hart 106.2 been going for three or four five years by the time I joined and I absolutely loved it and I I got to the point where I was reading bulletins for David Kidd Jensen on drive time and again one of the highlights of my career is working with him the nicest man in radio you can ever meet and they say never meet your heroes but I can remember winning a network chart show clock from him when I was in my teens. 
and a Nescafe one as it was sponsored in those days and then I happened to then end up being his newsreader and I actually employed his son at LBC and full circle goes around so that's how I got down to London and then Hart which was owned by Chrysalis bought LBC then LBC became as it is now this huge thing after many many years but yeah that's how I how I ended up down here News has been part of your progress. Your title, as far as I remember, at your last job before what you're doing now was head of news management. Yeah, effectively. Does that mean you manage the news? Yeah, I, well, yeah. <laughs> and and everybody who everybody who was working for the team, so more than a hundred journalists. Uh, right across the country from Glasgow to Cornwall to Kent to Norfolk I actually remember going back into the Norwich newsroom at Radio Broadland I'd never worked for Radio Broadland when I grew up that obviously became Hart and then I was in charge of the news operation in Hart and I can remember walking into that building going wow they never gave me a job here when I actually lived here and now I'm in charge of the, of the news operation but yeah it was global they eventually bought Hart and LBC as well as the Capital and Classic FM and they put it all together and Square in 2008 2009 and through a few jobs I had been sports editor at LBC and then became deputy managing editor of LBC and then moved more to the news side of it that was where my interest lied I loved I loved creating news bulletins Rob that's what I love doing I love being given two minutes or 90 seconds to tell people everything they need to know and I absolutely love doing that and I still love doing that but I also loved radio. So working at LBC gave me both of those. And then, yeah, I was, I was head of news. So effectively, every news bulletin you ever heard on a global radio station, whether that was Classic FM or Radio X or LBC or Hart, and that could have been in Cornwall or it could have been in Sheffield or it could have been in Liverpool, I was ultimately in charge of it. I was the person that people would come to and go, is this an issue? Why is this an issue? I don't like this person. Can we work with this person? We need a new person here and all that kind of stuff. In a way, there's a sort of, for me, a sense of sadness because you start in local radio. Radio is being created in this completely localised manner. And what's happened over the last 10, 20 years is inevitably it's become a series of large organisations. That's the corporate process. Yeah, I think it is progress. I said earlier that I thought audio had evolved from Marconi's day, and I think that radio continues to to evolve. But I think it's quite exciting that the fact that there are these massive conglomerates, and it's not just global that's made heart and, and capital across the country and smooth one sound, but with still local news. And look, I was in charge of all that when that happened, and I'm a firm believer that they're still delivering local content for people, and the listeners still listen. You know, There will be some people that won't listen, and that's totally their prerogative. It's a commercial radio station. If you don't want to listen, don't listen. It's not an issue. That's what the BBC's there for, ultimately, that the BBC is, is funded by everyone and they are there to provide local information as well but commercially they still have to do local content Rob and they are still doing it and I'm a firm believer that that was the right thing to do at that time. Bauer have done the same thing now with some of the other radio stations across the UK with the greatest hits network and the hits network and what I think it's allowed the chance and this is what I mean about evolving audio is now there is this kind of drive at the moment and this excitement that people are setting up their own radio stations again a bit like when we did it in the 90s and so York Mix in York has been set up and it's on DAB and it's uh, online and obviously smart speakers on your phone or whatever and that's effectively vying with what was Minster but that became Greatest Hits Radio and they're they're challenging them and I think it's good for the listener it's good for radio so I'm not one of these people that is doom and gloom about it 
it because I think the bigger that the companies come and they're still doing what they should be doing and I think that's right and I think Ofcom will continue to make sure that they are still providing a local service but it does allow for smaller organisations or people with different ideas to put themselves out there and see if it works and I think that is exciting in itself and that's why I love radio and why I still work in audio and radio now. Unlike television you can start a radio station in a bedroom. Yeah and I think the global pandemic has proved that even more. It is really easy I mean I was reading an article in the Sunday Times in the business section where it said effectively working from home now if the pandemic had happened 30-40 years ago in the 70s and 80s people wouldn't have been able to do their jobs there was no broadband they wouldn't have been able to do it but there is a certain now percentage of people who ultimately can do their job in their home and the article was very much saying that that will be the big change post-covid that yes there will still be offices but they're not going to be the numbers of people going to these offices that there were because the world has changed and i think that's the same with radio again i mean i know this i wasn't working at global while the pandemic happened but they suddenly had presenters doing shows from their bedrooms a new radio station boom radio has started totally with people in there they don't have any studios they just have people broadcasting from their own homes as you do and i know radio verulam do that i mean for, for community radio stations to quickly change the way that that whole setup where you had a base and people came in and did shows to totally change that and you're i know you're the chairman of the talking newspaper which is a really important service for blind and, and visually impaired people in right across the country the way that people change the way that they work to still deliver a product i think shows that it is this evolving thing and it is exciting and there is a future in it and the old song video killed the radio star it didn't in the 1980s it's not doing it in the 2020s it is something that can be both individual and small group and if necessary anarchic and whatever else because there's no great restraint apart from the authorities that regulate and make sure that you don't get too much nasty stuff out there you know that's important but it is possible for still for somebody who you like you were at your age of 18 or whatever to say i want to go out there and do something absolutely just that you've just done that again you left a secure job you've been in in work for years and then you say one day actually i'm off out of here i'm going to my bedroom to make my (laughs) company work Tell us what you're up to, because podcast is, we go back to what you said at the beginning, podcast is a very interesting now phenomenon, isn't it? It's something, yes. It really is like radio. Anybody can make a podcast. Yeah, and I think what I wanted to do, I'll be honest, Rob, the change for my career was very much a, a lifestyle and childcare change. My wife and I had a child, Matthew, who's now five and is absolutely, as, as all parents say, the most brilliant child I've ever seen. But <laughs> I made this decision before COVID, Rob, so I think I was a bit of a trendsetter because I realised both me and my wife were working full time. She was in London, I was in London. Unfortunately, Matthew wasn't the healthiest. He just had some breathing difficulties as a child. Sure, and sure. and I can remember getting a phone call in the middle of the afternoon from the person that was looking after him at that point. And we were happy with that situation as it was then. But he was struggling to breathe. And uh, I'm in London. My yeah. wife's in London. Uh, and I was like, what are we doing? Why are we trying to live like this? And I'm fortunate that I met my marvellous wife 20 odd years ago. And we've been married 20 years this year. And we had children a bit later. So it felt like... I 
I'd kind of done what I wanted to do within the company. I wanted to stay and I wanted to do something different. They were very much like they wanted me to carry on doing what I was doing. And that's fine. And I, I was good at it and I knew how to do it. But did I want to do it for the next 25 years of my life? No, I didn't. I wanted to try and do something a bit different. And I was really grateful that they were sad to see me go. And I'd like to think at some point if I could go back, then I, I might. But it was more I wanted to do something and take a step back. Again, people might look at it and go, why, why you? And it was because ultimately my wife's job was a lot bigger than mine. And it was the right decision for us at that moment in time. So I took a step back. Obviously, COVID came along after about three months of me not working for Global. And, and, and in some ways, again, it was perfectly timed because I could look after Matthew. There wasn't an issue. My wife, Carrie, could carry on doing her job. She could work from home and has done for many years anyway. So it actually was the perfect time for me to do it. I actually think I don't think I would have been able to cope if I would have had to have been running that news operation and looking after my son. It came at the right time. And what I really love now doing is editing podcasts, interviewing people. And I mentioned Michael and my business partner and I, we covered the Rio Olympics and the the London Olympics and Commonwealth Games and Rugby World Cup and Wimbledon and London Marathon. We've done loads of sport between us. And he's the voice of the Olympics on Talk Sport. You You will have heard him. And I think what's really great is that we thought there was a gap in the market. I'd like to think that we've filled it slightly. We have made podcasts in the last year for Team GB, for UK Sport with Dane Catherine Granger, her podcast. We make the London Legacy Development Corporation, the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, which is what it is in London. We make their podcasts. We do stuff for British Triathlon, British Athletics, Badminton England. We feel like we have the knowledge and experience and passion for Olympic and Paralympic sport, but it was scary doing it at the start of COVID. And actually, one of the podcasts swim england we made a podcast for them right at the start of the pandemic because everything closed didn't it you kind of forget this now i mean we're two years on you kind of forget literally everything shut the swimming pools weren't open and people were desperate to know when this stuff was going to reopen so we made a podcast from them and that actually got us going as a business and i will forever be grateful to the team at swim england jane nickerson the ceo for having faith in us to be able to deliver their message and it is still our most popular podcast of all time with thousands of downloads because people wanted to know what was happening i bet there's a lot of individual sports that actually don't manage to find a voice other than being interviewed briefly on the radio or on television and I think you want it to sound professional and again what I think Michael and I bring to it is between us 50 years of radio production because Michael actually used to work at Oasis FM way back in the day as well I think he will tell you that I took his job I don't think that was actually the case I think there was about six months in between us but he's worked in radio and TV production and he runs his own TV video production company up in his base in the northeast now so we bring that experience of this is what sounds good you can't work for global and not know what works and what doesn't work and what is the best and that was what global was all about it was about being the best and i was always like that i can remember being at radio norfolk as a cheeky 18 year old and trying to get them to be better than they were because i knew that if you did something this way it would sound better and and a lot of them took that on board i'm sure a lot of people thought that i was a precocious little thing but i've always had that passion for delivering the best and i think you're right that unfortunately in in this country football dominates everything there is a bit of space for rugby behind that national rugby at that probably more countries six nations autumn internationals and some club rugby and then there is some cricket 
as well. But apart from that, if you look at the back pages of the papers, you look at what's on social media, you look at what's on news bulletins, you look at what's on radio stations, it is very much those three sports dominate. But actually, there is so much other sport. And I think what I've really enjoyed, Rob, about my job, so we make a podcast for London Pulse, which is a netball club based at the Copper Box in the Olympic Park. They're a Vitality Netball Super League team, and their new season starts in a month's time. Now, we make their podcasts, but it's not about the results. It's not about who's played where, in which position, wing attack, goal defence, centre. It's about the work that they do in the community. It's about the work that they're doing to bring visually impaired people into the sport. Netball has never been played by the visually impaired. They've set it up with, I think it's Metro Sports, Blind Sports in London as a charity, and they now run their own sessions. They do half-term and holiday clubs with people in areas in the country that need support. And I think that's what I've learned doing the work that we do, because yes, I still talk about the results in our Anything But Footy podcast, and I love talking about the Olympics and we covered Tokyo last summer from here we were supposed to be going out there but obviously we didn't for the good people of Tokyo really they didn't need any more people going out there so I still love the results and I still love the gold medals and Max Whitlock defending his title in the pommel horse etc but what I've loved doing is working with these sporting organisations and you realise what else they bring to the party what else they are delivering to the country and to the good of people Um, and very quickly um, we made a couple of podcasts with UK Active at the end of last year who are a governing overarching body for gyms and leisure centres around the country and their mission is to get two million people active at the moment about a million people are active in leisure centres and gyms around the country they want that to be about two million over the next four or five years and for the good of the country to be healthy if you're healthy you're not likely to go to the NHS as much there's that benefit from there and that's that's what I've learned and I've I've really enjoyed telling that part of sport as well as the results thank you very much indeed thank you so much